It was an intriguing new clue in Robert Mueller's investigation, hiding in almost plain sight. All thanks to a botched filing by the lawyers for Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's former campaign manager. The lawyers had intended to rebut accusations by Mueller's prosecutors that Manafort had lied to them after agreeing to cooperate with the Russia investigation following his conviction on eight counts of financial fraud last August. The lawyers argued that Manafort should be cut some slack. He was suffering from severe gout, depression, and anxiety, and therefore shouldn't be punished if his memory about key events was a bit foggy. But when they addressed the specifics of Mueller's accusations, they made a formatting error and sensitive material they intended to black out in their public filing was easily readable once you downloaded it on the internet and printed it out. It was only then, when we learned what Manafort had hidden from federal prosecutors, that he had shared Trump campaign polling data with a business associate, Konstantin Kalimnik, who has been identified by U.S. officials as a Russian intelligence asset. Think about that. The chairman of a major party presidential candidate is slipping internal campaign data to a foreign adversary's intelligence source. Is this hard new evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin? Or is it, like much else in the Mueller probe, yet another ambiguous piece of a very murky puzzle? We'll discuss with one of Washington's leading scholars of the Russia investigation, and we'll take another fresh look at developments in the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi with fresh insights from a former top FBI counterintelligence agent. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Okay, my chief takeaway is thank the Lord for lawyers who screw up, because we have now learned some new information that we wouldn't have if the Manafort lawyers hadn't screwed up their filing. Absolutely. Well, as an old courts reporter, it is a reminder that you always have to go down to the clerk's office and check the filings because you never know whether intentionally or, as in this case, inadvertently, someone is going to leave a bombshell in one of those filings. And, you know, it's interesting, Mike. It seems like this is happening more and more often because you've got this case where the defense lawyers did it. But not that long ago, federal prosecutors in the Eastern District of Virginia did the same thing, and they inadvertently revealed that they were secretly charging Julian Assange in the WikiLeaks case. Yeah, which they filed in an un- completely unrelated court 
docket, which really baffles me because I don't understand how you can screw up that badly. That was the prosecutors in that case. In this case, it's the defense lawyers. But, but my but, recollection is that yes. you uh, were the uh, uh, beneficiary of uh, this kind of sloppiness yeah. way back in your career. And uh, yes, pretty important story yeah. that you were investigating. Yeah, it was the Ken Starr investigation. And at one point in the middle of that, Starr's prosecutors gave me a copy of what they thought was a public filing, something they had filed. And I got it. It was a big, lengthy document. And then I got a call a few hours later saying, hey, we screwed up. Actually, we need to retrieve that document. And I said, fine, just give me a little time so I could copy it and send it to them. And they dispatched one Brett Kavanaugh to come to our office at Newsweek to retrieve this uh, supposedly secret document, which I had already made a copy of. And uh, Kavanaugh, as I recall, looked quite sheepish when he showed up at the Newsweek Bureau. Well, unfortunately, Uh, that means Kavanaugh's probably learned his lesson. We're probably not going to get the internal notes from the Supreme Court Justice Conferences that they do on cases. So look, a lot to digest here. This Manafort filing, what does it add up to? How far does it go? We also had the indictment of Natalia Veselnitskaya, the Russian lawyer at the center of the Trump Tower meeting uh, on an unrelated matter, how she obstructed justice in a civil money laundering lawsuit brought by the Southern District in New York. And we have the news that uh, Rod Rosenstein is um, expected to be leaving the Department of Justice very soon. Rod, of course, has been overseeing the Mueller investigation. Investigation, And we have probably one of the best people in Washington to uh, dissect all this for us, Ben Wittes, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and editor and in chief and founder of Lawfare. And my old colleague from Legal Times of Blessed Memory, which was a terrific newspaper that covered law and lobbying in the nation's capital, as I think the slogan was. Ben, welcome to Skullduggery. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, I got to say, first of all, uh, you have gotten a lot of attention because you kind of pioneered the whole idea of the TikTok cannon about to blow off, explode every time there's a new development in the Russia investigation. Oh, are you wearing a cannon on your lapel there? <laughs> I am. You, this is a podcast. That, well, this is actually on video, isn't it? So yeah, you can yeah. maybe let's, see let's that little zero line. in on uh, <laughs> Wittes' cannon. All right. So what do you make of the new Manafort filing? and the other developments this week. So I honestly don't know what to make of the Manafort filing. I think there's basically two ways to read it, uh, or maybe, maybe more, but two obvious ways that I can see, one of them explosive and really important, and the other much less explosive and much less important. So if you're inclined to the explosive side, you say, well, his lawyers acknowledged that Mueller had alleged and acknowledged that it appears to be true Mm -hmm. that he, A, met with this guy Kalimnik, who's a former Russian intelligence guy who's now associated with Oleg Deripaska, and gave him, uh, so met with him secretly during the transition in Madrid, gave him during the same period in which the Russians are interfering in the election, gives him some kind of poll data, internal poll data, or some kind of poll data from the campaign itself, and also uh, discusses with him a peace plan for Ukraine. And so, I mean, I think it is perfectly reasonable to read that 
material as highly suggestive of some kind of collusion, whatever collusion is, right? But it's some kind of additional level of contacts between the campaign and Russian intelligence-connected people in the heat of the campaign. Here's the less, not necessarily less bad for Manafort, but Mm -hmm. less bad for Trump way to understand it. Mm -hmm. Manafort... We knew that he was in significant debt to Deripaska. Kalimnik is kind of Deripaska's, inter- his intermediary to Deripaska. And he, we had known for some time that he was trying to leverage his position as Trump's campaign chairman to, as he put it, get whole with Deripaska. So right? kind of currying favor kind of currying with favor. Deripaska because he's indebted to De- him. De- exactly. Deripaska had alleged in court filings in the, in the Cayman Islands, which... By the way, I first reported on in, the, in I think it was April of 2016, that uh, Manafort had ripped him off to the tune of like 20, 20, million, bucks. 20 million dollars on a Ukrainian cable deal. And, uh, you know, on its face, this seemed to be a somewhat disturbing development that the new campaign chairman of the Trump campaign was in debt to a well-connected Putin billionaire oligarch who was pursuing him for his money. Right. So, I mean, I think you you can see that, and I, you know, half of me does, as right. that the chairman of the Trump campaign is yeah. dishing information to the Putin-connected oligarch right. through the intermediary of a former Russian intelligence, military intelligence operative. Right. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, it's possible to see, look, he had said pretty early on that we, we'd known pretty early that his idea was to use this position to get himself right with Deripaska and get himself back in business. And so you could see him as him manipulating his position at the Trump campaign rather than the Trump campaign actually doing any of this collusion. And I don't think we're going to know which that is until we hear from Mueller about it, rather than hear from Manafort's lawyers about what Mueller Right, although what we believe to be the case from the filing and from some of the reporting that's been done after this filing is that Manafort lied about this, right? So I guess the question is, if he lied about it, and if he lied to Mueller about it, then why wasn't he charged? And if he wasn't charged, then that may support the less explosive theory. I think that's right. I think, you know, one problem is it's an overdetermined variable because Manafort seems to lie about everything, <laughs> right? And so, that's true. so I, sort of know, like the guy whose campaign he was uh, chairing. Yeah, it's, it's not, that doesn't distinguish him from the lot <laughs> yeah, among right. this group. But yeah. uh, like, I think you can tell yourself a lot of stories based on this very spare set of facts. And it's really important to remember what the posture of this memorandum was. It is not an elucidation of the facts. It is Manafort's lawyers responding to Mueller's people making a set of allegations in which they're assuming the facts have already been laid out. And they're just saying, hey, here's how we interpret this. Here's how we interpret that. So it's very hard to know from that document what it is that Mueller thinks his right. his own theory of the case is. I think it's potentially a very yeah. big deal. I but guess m- my caution is 
you know, let's wait to see what Mueller actually thinks. I guess there's here. a possibility that the two narratives are not mutually exclusive, that he's trying to get right with Deripaska. He also sees an, an opportunity to collude with the Russians yeah. to help Trump. And Right. Although that latter theory would be possibly less inculpatory vis-a-vis Trump. Right. If so, he's doing it on his own. If he's doing it, if right. he's freelancing on his own to get right, right. with Deripaska right. and, oh, maybe I'll get something good for the campaign here. That's a much more containable problem for Trump yeah. than if this was the secret channel between Putin through Deripaska, through Kalimnik, through Manafort and right. the campaign. Well, I, I, I want to throw out some provocative theories to you on this in, in a moment, but just talking about the duality and the two ways of looking at this, the New York Times played this up on the top of the front page saying, you know, this is the closest we've come. In fact, they quoted Clint Watts, former FBI intel analyst, saying this is the closest we've seen to collusion. But then they undercut the story a little bit by saying that most of the polling data that Manafort provided Kalimnik was in the spring of 2016 was public, but some of it was developed by a private polling firm working for the campaign. So it, it kind of does depend, the devil in, is in the details. What was this polling data? Was it really sensitive stuff that allowed, say, hypothetically, the Russian troll farm in St. Petersburg to target its Facebook ads to uh, interfere in the election? Or was it just, you know, the kind of stuff you could see on real clear politics every day? Right. Right. So, look, I think the world of Clint Watts, who I think has done a lot of really interesting work, but I actually disagree with him about this, even mm-hmm. if this is a window into the most extreme collusion. Right. It is only like a keyhole. We're not seeing the picture here right. yet. And by the way, that's in pretty sharp contrast to the Trump Tower meeting, where there is an overt approach about which we have no dispute. We would like to help this campaign. And by the way, it's, it's, it's not at the level, to me yet anyway, of, of the Trump Tower Moscow deal, right. where, where exactly. we have a I still fully, think well, that may end up being the most significant of all of these yeah. revelations. Ex- exactly, right. where we have a fully developed record of an attempt to make a deal about which they were lying at the time and lied in retrospect that continued well into the period in which Trump was the nominee of the Republican Party to build a tower and potentially kick back $50 million to the president of Russia. Right. Like, that strikes me as, as much, <laughs> yeah. much and, more, and more just, developed evidence of collusion just to than this. That thought and, and potentially also Make Trump president influ- in, in the making process. Making him president and profoundly influencing the policy that he pursues to be much more accommodationist toward a rival of the United States. Correct. So I think, you know, I'm a fan of Clint Watts, and I think he's right. done really, really important work. I do think, I do disagree with that statement, even if we assume that this is on the collusion end of the possibilities that are before us. Right, right, right. And I do have, I want, I'll want i be a little bit cryptic here, but I do have reason to believe we may be hearing more about that Trump Tower Moscow deal fairly shortly. I, but I, 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 I just I, want to I, tease Ben. And baby, see oh, really, baby, baby Cannon I, is I, quivering I, with excitement. I want to get the... Uh, yeah, you don't really know what cannon. this is, but you heard it first here on Skullduggery. <laughs> right. So, look, let me uh, throw out uh, some provocative theories on this and want to get your thoughts. Um, you recently published on Lawfare a piece uh, co-authored by Chuck Rosenberg, former chief of staff to Robert Mueller, giving a somewhat generous assessment of the Steele dossier. 
suggesting that much of it lined up with Mueller's actual filings. Now, others have taken issue with that, pointing out, including me among them, that some of the more specific allegations that got the big headlines about the um, Steele dossier, namely the Golden Showers episode with prostitutes in the hotel room and the Michael Cohen visit to Prague remain unproven, uncorroborated, and not supported by anything in the public record. But a story that I think a lot of people missed, and I, I may include you in this, but is a New York Times story from last September pointing out that among the people that Steele was working for at the time that he was preparing the dossier was a lawyer for one, Oleg Deripaska, the very guy who Manafort was trying to stave off and mollify after ripping him off for $20 million. Now, the dossier does identify Manafort as the key guy who was in charge of collusion with the Russian effort to interfere in the election. And it does raise the question, I think, and I want to get your thoughts on this, Ben, as to whether or not some of what was in the dossier had been fed by Deripaska or Deripaska's people to steal as a way of screwing and embarrassing and putting the heat on Paul Manafort. So... Uh, a few things. First of all, with regard to Chuck Rosenberg and Sarah Grant's piece, mm. I think the point of the piece was that there are pieces of the document that have tracked rather well with developments in the public record, generally at a high level of generality. Right. And I don't there, disagree with that. There are right. pieces that are, there's large swaths of it that are neither corroborated nor refuted. And there are these, yes, there are these discrete, very high-profile areas where I personally see very little reason to think the Prague meeting took place, as your recent, uh, mm. uh, as, as you guys <laughs> recently discussed about yeah. Pro Prague meetings, new and old. Yeah. Um, uh, I also a, a true listener yeah. of Skullduggery. I, I am like an obsessive this. listener. Well, of <laughs> all right, and buried treasure apparently. Word, yes. yeah. But you know, I, I I think the point of the piece, as I read it, mm -hmm. was that we shouldn't lose in these discussions of these discrete high-profile things that everybody focused on, including, by the way, the president, mm -hmm. who you know, sort of obsessed with these, you know, that there were some broader thematic points that the dossier was, or that Steele's work was making that have actually aged rather well. Now, that is a thesis that will stand or fall on the latter developments in that that we haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. But I think I think that was the, mm -hmm. the point that they were trying to make. Look, uh, as to your theory, and I have not, you're, you're mm -hmm. right, if, if, if I had, I'm sure I read this piece at the time, but yeah. I, I, it was not at the front of my mind. I have always believed that the principal risk associated with the steel material was that he was being fed stuff in a fashion that, by the way, when you do intelligence collection of an analysis of that sort, you always have to wonder what you're actually collecting and right. what you are being given. Right. And there was always a risk that Steele was being 
indirectly because he wasn't actually collecting the material himself. No, he had a collector. He, 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 he didn't go to Moscow. Exactly. He didn't talk to any of the sources cited so, in the dossier so it's, memos. So it's pretty, you know, you can imagine a lot of levels at which disinformation could have come his way, either inadvertent yeah. or intentional. And you raise a very interesting possibility as to what some of one of the sources of that could have been. Right. I think at the end of the day, the integrity of the steel material is a less important question than a lot of people think it is. Because, you know, if you're on the far right interested in discrediting the investigation, mm -hmm. the, the sort of Devin Nunes, Trey Gowdy's of the world, Mark Meadows, then the discrediting of the Steele dossier is a way of suggesting that the investigation itself was kind of born in original sin and that some exclusionary rule applies to the entire rest of the right, investigation. Right, but that's in the right. aggregate. But when you're looking at these allegations, you're looking at what's in the Steele report, you do have to look case by case, and this is always the truth with intelligence, and look to see whether they're are agendas behind the information that has flowed into a report like this. And in this particular case that we started out talking about today, Manafort and Deripaska and the passing of polling data, it could be, I think we have to allow for the possibility that this was a product of a nasty dispute between two sleazy businessmen. Yes, mm -hmm. right? absolutely. And by the way, one of the problems with Manafort reneging on his plea agreement, which, by the way, for those listeners who may at some time get in trouble with federal law enforcement, when you make a plea agreement, follow the terms of it, because poor Paul Manafort is going to spend way more time in prison than he actually should under the terms that his lawyers worked out for him. And it is because he wouldn't tell the truth even after this. One of the problems with that is that resolving that question that you raise is going to be very difficult now because there is this person who's in federal custody who knows the answer to a lot of these questions. You, 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 and don't, uh, you don't accept the arguments of his lawyers that he's suffering from depression, anxiety, and severe Gout and that has gout part, impaired his, you know, impaired his memory. Gout <laughs> sucks, and, and I, I can totally see yeah. how gout would make you severe. Gout would make you really grouchy. Yeah, I'm not sure gout would make me want to lie to Bob Mueller. <laughs> okay, all right. So more broadly, Rod Rosenstein's resignation or apparent resignation soon. I think a couple of months or next month. He wants to wait. He wants to wait till Barr, William, Bill, Bill, Bill Barr's Barr. confirmation hearing is next week. Could be attorney general. Uh, that's going to be a very interesting hearing in and of itself. There's going to be uh, a lot of questions about some of what we've reported, including the fact that before he was offered the job of attorney general, he was offered the job of being chief defense lawyer by Trump in the investigation he's now going to oversee and clearly has some very strong views on it. What do you make of if Rod Rosenstein goes, and then it's now all under Bill Barr. What do you make of it? Three things. One is I do tentatively take Rod's willingness to resign and step down at this stage as a pretty significant indicator that you're reporting to the effect that the investigation really is in winding down stage is accurate. That is, I think, you know, Rod's journey back to respectability after his sort of tawdry involvement in the Comey firing 
is almost entirely a function of the fact that he's responsible for the appointment of Mueller and the protection of Mueller. Why was his involvement tawdry? Well, I mean, I say this as somebody who's, you know, not, I suppose, not entirely dispassionate on the subject. Right. Um, but by most accounts, he, to one degree or another of knowingly, wrote a memo for the president justifying fully pretextual fashion, mm -hmm. uh, a firing knowing, having read the president's a proposed letter from Bedminster, yeah. uh, knowing that, in fact, this was not a reflection of the grave injustice that Jim Comey had done to Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think, you know, Rod's origin story in this investigation is not a pretty one. And his journey back, and, I, and, and mm -hmm. look, I, I think he has, you know, he's made some mistakes over the last couple of years, but he has, in a very meaningful sense, redeemed himself in very important ways. And core to all of that is both the selection of Mueller and then the willingness to put himself between Mueller and the president and Mueller and the Congress and absorb the blows that really were intended for to disrupt that investigation and he's you know been done that with some missteps very ably and and very tenaciously and I think in you know I say this cuz I'm not you know I'm not his biggest fan, but I do think very honorably. And so I... It's I, a really, it's a, this is a really interesting take on Rod Rosenstein, because before, Isakoff and I were talking about what would his legacy be, and we were talking that the sort of either-or, was he the political hack in the end who gave cover to Trump to fire Comey, or was he, as some people began to think, kind of almost a member of the resistance um, and a guardrail inside the Justice Department. When it's either somewhere in between or it may be both is what you're suggesting. I think it started uh, one I, way. And who knows? We haven't we've known Rod for years, but we haven't had a chance to sort of plumb his soul about these issues. It is possible, at least, that he has been angst ridden about his role early on, and he's tried to figure out how to redeem himself, to use your word. Uh, so, you know, what his psychodrama is about it is is not my, I'm not a therapist. It's going to be a great skullduggery it's it, interview. It's going to be a great conversation for you guys one day. I'm dealing with the facts of what he did, and I do think that the first five weeks of Rod Rosenstein or three weeks of Rod Rosenstein in office is a genuinely terrible and, story. And you, you mentioned the Bedminster letter, and I think it's, it, it's worth reminding listeners and viewers what that was, because this took place, I think, uh, in early May of 2017 at Trump's golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey. He essentially wrote this memo or this letter with Stephen Miller seems to have dictated it dictated to, Steve, to him. To it Stephen was a Miller. the New York Times called it a screed. We haven't seen the letter, but we believe it specifically talked about the Russia investigation being political and being I can't remember the exact language. And we know that that letter was a few days later in the Oval Office given to Rod Rosenstein, and then Rod took it and then wrote his memorandum focusing on the Hillary Clinton investigation, Comey's handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation, that formed the basis of the Jeff Sessions letter firing Comey. Exactly. And I think that means that at some level, Rod knew he was being used as a set piece. And I, I think what his psychological experience of 
that period was is something that you know I'm sure people who chronicle the events will spend a lot of time on. My point is simply as a observer of the events, I think there is very little to say in defense of his behavior early on. And then he clearly pivots and he makes a decision, whether it's because he acknowledges error or because he sees something else, I don't know. He makes a decision that what he needs to do is appoint a special prosecutor, a special counsel, as we call them now, and defend that person and make sure that he can do that job. All right, I'm I'm going to... And hang on. I don't believe that Rod would be comfortably walking away from the situation if he thought that that might mean that Mueller did not get to finish his work in a significant way. Well, I'm going to play defense lawyer for Rosenstein here for a little bit, just for the purpose of this conversation, which is that— I was trying to praise him. (laughs) Well, well, his memo laying out Comey's transgressions, I see no reason to believe that that wasn't absolutely sincere and reflect his belief about the way a— federal prosecutor, Department of Justice official should behave, that, you know, Comey had no business going out on his own and but that's not opining really the point, is it, it's on the— It's not the point. Well, no, no, no. The point that is he, that he had reason to believe that he already knew why Trump wanted to get rid of Comey, right. and it wasn't really about his handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation, but and he had reason to believe one, that Trump— Yes, you can, can one believe argue sh- that regardless of what Trump intended, Rod Rosenstein, as the you know number two official in the Justice Department, believed that Comey's transgressions were real, that they presented a real danger to the way the Justice Department should operate. You can't have FBI directors going off on their own without approval from the Justice Department, making pronouncements about ongoing investigations that not their role. And his letter at the end, you know, which probably most people agree influenced the election more than anything else, including probably what the Russians did, was a a violation of Justice Department protocol. And you can sincerely believe that. And regardless of what the intentions are of the commander in chief, you can lay out what your concerns are, which is what he did. Yeah. So I actually agree with all of that. And I have well, no- that doesn't make this very much fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I'm gonna, but I'm gonna stick in your eye now. Um, so, like, I, I, look, I, I actually agree with all of that, and I have no reason to believe that Rod does not sincerely believe all of his uh, criticisms. And by the way, his criticisms are the orthodox position. I mean, mo- most former senior Justice Department officials agree with Rod on the merits of that, not with Jim. And right. so, but even though, even that he should have been fired. Well, that's a different that's a different okay. question. But yeah, agree but on, on the, the on the merits yeah. of the criticism. Yeah. You know, Rod's position is not substantially different from mm. what the uh, inspector general found in criticizing Jim. It, so it I, was what the inspector general found. Right. Yep. So so I, my point is not a point about the merits of the issue. But number one, if you feel that way enough to recommend to the president that as a pretext for something you know he's going to do for other, and by the way, corrupt reasons. Right. Perhaps you should not invite the director of the FBI to address your staff at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore, introduce him as an inspirational leader, and make no reference to any of that. And Jim took some tough questions from the AUSAs on the subject, but uh, you know, Rod's Rod's sense of offense at that was not enough that he did not invite Jim to come speak to the U.S. Attorney's Office at Baltimore. 
on in a discussion of leadership and introduce him in glowing terms. Right, right. So I have no doubt that Rod believes what he believed. And I have no doubt as well, at least from the public reporting, that he was kind of aware he was being used as a set piece. And I also know that three or four months earlier, five months earlier, he was uh, content to introduce Comey yeah, in that, glowing terms. Right, that right. that and, anecdote although, makes you wonder whether it, yeah. it was his intention to start with to fire, to have right, him fired. Right, right. Although, again, to be fair to Rod, he did make a point of noting that when Comey testified in February, he said he would do the same thing again. And I think Rosenstein focused on that. Like, he was he was not reflective about what he had done wrong, he being Comey. He was prepared to defend and redo what he had previously done. So I'm going to pull a George Conway here and start yeah. asking you questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let me ask you something. Yeah. Do you think that if Rod had not known that the president wanted to fire Jim Comey for other reasons, he would have written that memo sua sponte. Uh, <laughs> I love that term, sua sponte. I remember a, an old editor uh, barking that at me uh, on a, in a different context. You're not answering my question. Uh, yeah, I'm not yeah. answering yeah. the question. I'm filibustering. We have no more time for you, Mr. <laughs> okay. Scott. Just, let's get just checking. All right, you're probably right. But, you know, it does raise the broader question of this is the core of the Mueller obstruction investigation and how it is that somebody like Rod Rosenstein, who was so intimately involved in the events that are under investigation as part of that obstruction investigation, can be the overseer, can have been the overseer of the investigation, has been something that's been puzzling a lot of people for a long time. And will continue to. It's one of the enduring mysteries of the period. Well, the good thing is I suspect much of this is going to be aired uh, next week at Bill Barr's confirmation hearing to be attorney general. And Ben Wittes, we would love to have you back on uh, Mm -hmm. to talk about uh, Bill Barr and uh, the continuing Mueller investigation and all of these things that you have so much insight into. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And keep the cannon uh, polished for, um, (laughs) you know, just give me a heads up when stuff is coming. (laughs) Okay. Very soon. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. After taping this interview, we wanted to give you two updates. First, the New York Times posted a correction to its original story about Manafort and that polling data, saying the former Trump campaign chair did not pass the information to Oleg Deripaska, the Putin-connected oligarch in Russia, but to two Ukrainian oligarchs for whom he'd worked in that country. And secondly, and more importantly, Trump's ex-lawyer, Michael Cohen, has now agreed to testify in public before the House Oversight Committee on February 7th. It should be quite the hearing... So stay tuned, as we will be here at Skullduggery. We are now joined by one of our favorite Skullduggery guests, uh, the uh, decorated, famous FBI former counterintelligence agent, Ali Sufan. What brings you to Washington this week? Well, um, we're coordinating with the House and a few senators uh, an event to mark the 100 day and the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. Jamal Khashoggi is one of 53 journalists that were killed uh, in 2018. That is an astronomical number. It's, it's, it's a huge number. And uh, Jamal Khashoggi, because of the way he was killed, because of the brutal of the murder and the way he was dismembered and everything, mm-hmm. became a symbol for 
standing up for journalists around the world. We're having an event on Capitol Hill. That event will include people from uh, both sides of the aisle. It is co-sponsored by both Republicans and Democrats and many uh, organizations, uh, human rights organizations, uh, many journalists, many uh, groups that uh, advocate for journalism and the protection of a journalist uh, will be also part of that event. What's the message you want people to take from this? The message is basically we're not going to stand on the side and allow these attacks on journalisms and journalists who are doing their job to bring the truth to the people worldwide. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, freedom of speech, freedom of expression is an American value, an American principle. And I think we need to stand up for our values and our principle and hold everybody accountable, including our allies. Because if we don't hold our allies accountable, we're going to look so hypocrites when we're dealing with the enemies. And uh, the United States is about value. Um, when uh, I took an oath, I took an oath to defend the Constitution that have all the values and the principles that America stands for. The very first amendment of the Constitution, mm. before any other an amendment, mm. is freedom of speech. I'll and I think if we don't stand up for that, who, who are we? Well, we certainly appreciate you putting so much emphasis on freedom of expression and on, uh, on the press and on the First Amendment. But clearly, this is an issue that's uh, touched a nerve among Democrats, among Republicans, all people. And part of the issue here is what you began to talk about, about accountability, holding our allies accountable. And I guess my question is, 100 days after this brutal murder, my sense is that this is not an issue that people are talking about nearly as much, and that Donald Trump, who has not really acknowledged who was responsible for this, namely the Saudi regime and, and in all likelihood, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia. First of all, give us a sense of where you think that issue stands right now and how you keep attention on that and how concerned you are that, uh, that Trump is just going to move on to the next controversy the way he does and kind of escape accountability on this issue. You know, I, I think we have America and we have Trump. And we have to do our job as American citizens, as people who believe in our country and what we stand for. And uh, if the president doesn't want to talk about this, that's fine. We are going to be talking about it. You're going to find out many Republicans, many Democrats, members of the House, members of the Senate. You're going to have human rights organizations. You're going to have Penn. You're going to have... CPJ. You're going to have the Writers Guilds of America. You're going to have all these organizations who stand up uh, for freedom of speech and freedom of expression and journalism around the world. We're going to be hand in hand together trying to keep the memory of Jamal Khashoggi on because it's a, Jamal Khashoggi is just a journalist, but also Jamal Khashoggi became a symbol. And that's why we're linking the 100 day of his death to this big event that we're doing on Capitol Hill. This is amazing to do an event like this on Capitol Hill with bipartisan support. That means a lot of America care about this. A lot of people in Congress care about this. Um, you know, I know in this age, in the age of Trump, everybody look at the, you know, the glass half empty, not half full. I would like to, instead of focusing on the tweets of the president, on the statements of the president, of the, on the entertainment, uh, you know, aspect 
of the presidency, I would like to focus on the people who are doing the job and, 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 and right. working hard on our institutions, on our principles, because this is what America is all about. America is way more than a tweet or, 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 or a statement. All right. But look, the key question, Ali, is, is, is whether we're going to hold the Saudis responsible um, for what was done here. They have been a key ally, including on counterterrorism cases that you worked for many years. Uh, well, that's they, always questionable. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> but, 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 you know, they have been uh, a strategic ally as a bulwark against the Iranians, certainly. This is the, the Trump White House sure. point anyway. So, sure. look, what do we do with an ally, a longstanding ally under both administrations like the Saudis, when they behave like this? What would you like well, to I see think, be done? I, I think a lot of things is being done as we speak. I mean, uh, there is a bipartisan support, okay, to blaming MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown right. Prince of Saudi Arabia, for, for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Right. When you have people like Senator Rubio, when you have people like Senator Graham, who are supporters of the president when it comes to foreign policy mm-hmm. and a lot of other issues. When you have people in both House and Congress, from the House and the Senate, Republicans and Democrats, all of them criticizing an ally, Saudi Arabia, something that we didn't see before, that is big. Saudi Arabia, after the death of Jamal Khashoggi, is not the same as Saudi Arabia before the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think King Salman had an opportunity to choose between his son and between the stability of the House of Saudi. Unfortunately, he chose his son. We need Saudi Arabia as a strong ally. Right. We need Saudi Arabia as a strong ally because with a strong ally, we can counter terrorism. With a strong ally, we can counter you know, Iran. With a strong ally- All right, so what do we do? Do we demand that MBS be removed from his, as crown prince? Uh, you know what, they can is do- it, Is it our job to do that? Well, they can do, do whatever they're gonna do. The only thing, the yeah. only leverage we have is what you start to see now exerting pressure on them in Congress. And that is really big. You yeah. know, that's something the Saudis never experienced before, not even after 9-11 had a unanimous bill blaming them for the 15 Saudis who, you know, flew planes into buildings killing 3,000 Americans. Uh, You know, I I investigated the East Africa embassy bombing. Guess what? There were Saudi suicide bombers. The U.S. has called. Guess what? Saudi suicide bombers. 9-11. Guess what? Saudi suicide bombers. Uh, A lot of the attacks that took place in Syria and Iraq with, you know, at at, at least at the very uh, beginning uh, for the first two years of the Syrian civil war, more than 80% of the suicide bombers were from Saudi Arabia. So there is a problem there. We're not talking about a lot of these things, but we're talking, if you want to be our ally, if you want to be our partner in countering Iran, if you want to be our partner in countering Al-Qaeda and ISIS and extremism, you have to live up to a particular standard. Right. And you can have the lobbyist groups in D.C., and they have the best. You can have relationship with the White House. But you know what? You cannot buy off all of America. Right. And the unanimous bill that came in the House and the Senate was a first message. Now, okay. if Mohammed bin Salman continues in his reckless behavior. And we can mm-hmm. see what's happening in Yemen. We can see what happened with the Lebanese prime minister. Right. We saw what happened with uh, Khashoggi. We saw what happened with his coup against Mohammed bin Nayef, who was the number one counterterrorism partner we have. Right. Um, you can see all the reckless behavior, the palace intrigue with right. arresting all the businessmen and mm-hmm. the princess and putting them in the Ritz-Carlton in Saudi right. Arabia. If this is going to continue, I can guarantee you that Saudi Arabia will cease to have the relationship with the West and with the United States that they had before. Right. 
Well, you're so, a you're a, a legendary investigator. I don't um, know about I, that. <laughs> well, <laughs> what is your theory of the case as to why this president has not been willing uh, to hold the Saudis accountable and not even acknowledge what his own CIA has uh, has. You know, told him that, it was, told them that it was MBS who was responsible for this. And let me just mention this. Uh, last week on this podcast, we interviewed Congressman um, Swalwell from California, who sits on the House Intelligence Committee. He told us that the uh, Intelligence Committee is going to be investigating uh, whether Donald Trump's financial interests uh, may have something to do with uh, his stance towards the Saudis in the aftermath of this killing. Do you buy that theory? Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, possibility. I mean, uh, Donald Trump was a guy during his speeches say, hey, why should I hit the Saudis? They give me a lot of money. I get millions and millions of the Saudi. They buy my stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's almost an exact quote. So, yeah, he has a relationship with them. There is some kind of a transactional relationship uh, with him and some elements of the House of Saud, maybe specifically with MBS. And I allow me to go a little bit beyond what the, the representative said. I hope that with the final report of uh, my former boss, Director Mueller, I hope that we can probably have a better answer. Probably have a better answer about Trump's connections with the Saudis? Absolutely. Well, he's, I mean, that's not within his mandate. He's investigating the links to Russia, not to the Saudis. Well, the, the Russians, it seems yeah. to me that the right. Russians did a lot of things, but it seems to me somebody else paid the money. Huh. Why uh, explain? I, 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 I don't know. This is this <laughs> yeah. is my own personal assessment of reading stuff. I well, mean, the Seychelles yeah, meeting was yeah. coordinated by the Emiratis in the Seychelles. Right. The, the meeting that took place in New York with mm -hmm. all the folks that we hear about, mm -hmm. uh, that was also coordinated not only with the Emiratis, but also with George Nader, who works with Mohammed mm -hmm. bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, the right. crown prince of the UAE and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So every time there is something really interesting and important, they appear to be in the middle of it. So I don't know if that has something to do with it. But as an FBI investigator, definitely I'll be following this lead. Right. Maybe they will lead to something. Maybe they will lead to nothing. Right. And that's why I hope that, uh, you know, we will probably know more if we if right. we wait until to see it. Follow the money. Follow the money. Follow the money. Follow the money. This is the most important thing. All right. Let's go back to following the tweets, because uh, President Trump tweeted uh, just a few days ago that a U.S. airstrike had killed the leader of the USS Cole bombing in October 2000, killed, I think, 17 uh, U.S. US sailors. Guys. You were the principal investigator of the coal bombing. Was Badawi the guy we got, the leader of the attack? No, he was the logistic guy. The so you leader. mean Trump was wrong in his tweet? Well, I are mean, you I'm surprised? Stop <laughs> the presses, <laughs> right? On, are you surprised? Yeah, yeah. You know I mean? uh, it's not even worth uh, right. challenging at this yeah. point. You know, the leader of the USS Cole attack is Abdurrahim al Nashiri, and he is currently in Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. uh, he was involved not only with the attack on the USS Cole, but he was also involved in the attack on the Limburg and many other terrorist right. plots that took place. And, and he's a Saudi citizen. Peninsula. And he's a Saudi citizen. Right. The person that um, was mm -hmm. killed uh, last week is Jamal al Badawi. Mm -hmm. uh, Jamal al Badawi was one of the first people we arrested uh, in connection to the USS Cole. Mm -hmm. uh, let me rephrase that first, subject. Right. We arrested, I uh, interrogated him uh, with a few of my colleagues mm -hmm. uh, early on, and uh, he was the logistic 
spokesperson. He was a Qaeda member. He uh, uh, fought with Al-Qaeda in uh, Bosnia during the Bosnian War. He went to mm. Afghanistan. He became mm. close to the network of Osama bin Laden, especially to Khalad bin Atash, who's also in Guantanamo Bay. And he was uh, involved in the... Uh, he was a key figure. I remember Khalad. Yeah, yeah. Right. he's yeah. a key figure in the 9-11. He was yeah. at the Malaysia. Exactly. And Khalad is the one who introduced him to Nashuri and told him to assist Nashuri. So when Nashuri came to Aden, he reached out to Badawi. And Nashuri was um, the oldest guy in a way, uh, you know, the godfather of the uh-huh. cell, the Aden yeah. cell of Al-Qaeda. Right. Uh, so Badawi helped Nashuri uh, select operatives from Aden to participate in the operation. He helped him rent facilities that were uh, used to plot the mm-hmm. call attack. For example, they rented a safe house. They rented a bomb factory, a, a house that they used as a bomb factory. They rented an observation post where they uh, monitored the port. Uh, he was supposed to videotape the operation, Badawi, uh, but he gave the job to another guy. Kuso, uh, or Kuso. Kuso whose yeah. alarm <laughs> clock didn't go We're off, really as I recall. In the the other thing I remember just very quickly is I think there was a dry run. Tell me if I'm right about this. And uh, they actually went in with a little skiff but the, but it got stuck in the mud in the uh, in the was that yeah, right yeah that was yeah. actually the evening of the millennium almost actually january 5th a couple of days uh, before the millennium and it was the same boat with the same explo- explosives that they use in the USS call, at the yeah. USS call later on. Uh, but what happened is uh, it sunk in the sand, and uh, the boat um, you know, had to be lifted. So they right, seemed like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Right. But in the oh, end, yeah, absolutely. But they the, pulled the off end, this yeah, horrible yeah. attack. But let's get right. to al-Nashiri, because he ends up in Guantanamo. Yeah. Right. After, I mean, I think he's arrested or uh, detained in Dubai in 2002. Well, actually, it goes to a, to yeah, a, right. a black site, right? Right, right. And then he's sent to multiple black site prisons in Poland and Romania and elsewhere, is waterboarded, is clearly uh, subjected to grotesque enhanced interrogation yeah. techniques. Um, which did not produce anything. Which did not produce anything. Did you interrogate Nashiri? No, I wasn't allowed to. You weren't allowed to. I became persona CIA, non grata. <laughs> had and, yeah. and you had because, taken on the CIA absolutely. over those so, tactics. Yeah, so, and we should make that point. Ali is the guy who stood his ground and said, no, we're not going to engage in these kind of enhanced interrogation techniques, and which by the is way, borderline torture. fully yeah. supported by Bob Mueller, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, right. Director Mueller supported us uh, very well. And you know what? The point that we made at the time, first of all, it's not producing anything. Then think about the end game. What are you going to do with those guys after you do these things to them? And voila, look what's happening in Guantanamo Bay today. Right, look right. what's happening in the USS Call case yeah. today. How many judges oh. left? How many prosecutors right. left? How many uh, defense attorneys resigned in protest? Na- Nashiri it's a would, mess. Would, after he was tortured, waterboarded, everything, they held a gun to his head, a drill to his head to threaten him uh, and all that. He's sent to Guantanamo. He's indicted under the original Bush military commissions in 2008, more than a decade ago. And then he's re-indicted in, I think, 2011. Here we are, 2019. He is 
not been brought to trial. There's been no justice yeah. in the coal bombing. And it doesn't even look like it's on the horizon. Not, the military commissions. What do you make of the military commission system at this point? I, I mean, uh, do I have to make a point? I mean, yeah. we never prosecuted anyone yeah. since uh, yep. since I went there on, for Bahlul and right, for right. Hamdan. L- low level, not but, the high level we, guys. We know, right. You know, those people who were involved in 9-11... Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is probably one of the worst masterminds, terror masterminds, uh, murderers in uh, the 21st century, at least the first half of the 21st right, century. Yeah, right. uh, and, and, and he killed, he admitted, he bragged about killing 3,000 Americans. Right. And we cannot even prosecute him. Right. If, so that if, gives you an idea about how much this system is effective. This is horrible. This is horrific. If these guys had been flown into Manhattan, to the Southern District of New York, and put on trial there in Article Three courts, I can guarantee you it could now. have been done. Yeah, the federal death penalty. That, that the stuff that we have on Nashiri. I helped the Yemenis because there was a decision at the time on, on Nashiri, on Badawi, on Kuso that. Um, let's uh, prosecute the coal in Sana'a, in Yemen. So I went there with my team, and we helped a Yemeni uh, mm-hmm. prosecutor, the mm-hmm. prosecutor general in Yemen, to prosecute the case. Uh, we won death penalty on Badawi and on Nashiri mm-hmm. based on the investigation, based on the evidence, based on the forensic, based on the statements of witnesses, mm-hmm. and based on right. the interrogation of, of yeah. Jamal Badawi. So we have so much evidence that can be brought in a federal court to include Nashuri's alleged role in the East Africa embassy bombings. One of the suicide bombers in the East Africa embassy bombing, in the Nairobi bombing, was his cousin. He recruited him for the operation. And the day before the bombing, Nashuri called his aunt in Saudi Arabia and told her her son received martyrdom because he didn't want the Saudis to connect the suicide attack against our embassy to his cousin. So he told her the day before that her son received martyrdom. He was involved in so many plots, and all these things were obtained through FBI investigations. Every person, including Badawi, every time uh, we talked to Badawi, we read him his Miranda rights in Arabic. Every time he waived his Miranda rights before talking to us. Um, So we have a lot of statements, a lot of evidence, a lot of FBI agents who can go to court, raise their right hand and testify under oath about statements that they got, about um, evidence that they collected, uh, about uh, DNA samples. I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, we took the wrong path on this, and that's right. why real justice hasn't been served. Okay, so we're almost out of time, but very quickly, what do we do now? What should be done? On what? Uh, uh, with with <laughs> all these high-level detainees in Gitmo, terrorists who we have all this evidence against, Nashiri, KSM, the others, what is the next step? I mean, should we just dissolve these military commissions and bring them out of federal court? Look, you know what? I, I think before we even go to that level, what we need to do is come in peace with EITs and with the black interrogation side, enhanced interrogation techniques with the black, declassify everything. Because I believe uh, 99.999% of all the problems is basically you're trying to do a court case for these individuals, but you cannot talk about what happened during a black site. Even with these commissions who are not part of military law, as you know, and not mm-hmm. part of 
uh, uh, Article Three courts, even with these commissions, they are not kangaroo courts. Mm-hmm. And no judge is just going to allow this to happen. You know, and that's, that's what the big problem is. Mm-hmm. Are we willing to talk publicly about all these things in a court of law or not? If we're not, 10 years from now, we're going to be at the same position as we are now. And unfortunately, as long as some people still feel that they can classy, over-classify, redact, rewrite history with no accountability whatsoever, this thing is going to continue to happen. Ali, if this is going to go on for another 10 years, we'll have plenty of opportunity to have you back on Skullduggery to keep talking about this because it's a really important issue. I would always love to come, but I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> well, we wanted you on to talk, talk about Al-Hazmi and Al-Madar and the Malaysia yeah. Summit meeting. Now you're really in the weeds there. Anyway, oh Ali Sufan, thanks for coming back. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Ben Wittes and Ali Sufan for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you next week.